just having James stay up here and just play, you know, in those moving parts of the sermon just to tug at your heartstrings a little more. More. If you grew up in the Bible Belt, you know what that's like. You've experienced that. Um, my name's Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Excited to have you guys with us this morning. Thanks for bringing the church into this building uh, to gather together. And we're going to even talk about uh, some of the, the heartbeat behind that, what that means uh, as we dive in this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, as Jason mentioned, we are uh, in a four-week series on the church that's carrying us through the month of January. And so this is the final week of that series, uh, I would encourage you to go back online. You can listen to uh, the first three sermons from, from the past three weeks. You can even um, connect online to the Q&A times. We posted those uh, as podcasts as well. You can kind of see what sort of questions have been asked and what we've been exploring together during that Q&A time. This is a series that I began with a question, and the question was this. When you think of the church, what comes to mind? My guess is if I passed out little white slips of paper with that question on it and asked you to write down a response, that uh, we would get a variety of answers. Some of those just different ways of semantically saying the same thing, but, but there are probably a number of responses that would come to a question like that. When you think of the church, what comes to mind? How would you define the church? What is your perception of the church? Uh, in the first week, my goal was to awaken our hearts to the, the reality that you and I have an incredibly meaningful part to play in a very small chapter of a very big story of redemption that God planned before time began. That you and I, we're a part of a rescue story for the ages, a real life fairy tale, the likes of which the greatest fiction writers of all time couldn't possibly have dreamed into existence. And I argued that you and I exist as part of this rescue story for the ages in order that we might joyfully spend our lives for the glory of God. Now, none of us gets the role of the hero in this story. That role is reserved for Jesus Christ alone. That part of what it means to be the church is to let go of the empty chase of self-exaltation, to embrace our supporting cast role, you might say. But that doesn't mean that our role in the story is meaningless. As we talked about in week one, if you are a Christian, you are a metaphorical brush that God is using to add gospel color to the canvas of human history. We'll, we'll ground that in just a moment and talk about what that really means and what that really looks like. That you and I, as the church, have an incredibly meaningful part to play in a very small chapter of a very big story of redemption that God planned before time began. And I said in week one that if that's true, and if our hearts are captured by that truth, then we will find ourselves freed from two things. Number one, the empty chase of self-exaltation because this thing is ultimately about God's glory, not ours. And secondly, we will find ourselves freed from apathy towards Jesus and the church because we have a significant part to play in the greatest story that's ever been told. In week two of this series, we came down from that visionary high altitude of taking a look at the story for what it is and our role in the story and we took a look at the various word pictures that the Bible uses to describe to us what the church is like. And my hope was that God would minimize the gap that exists in our minds when we think of the church and the true picture of the church that exists in the pages of Scripture. The church is a people whom Jesus gave himself up for. If you declare yourself to be part of the church, what you're saying is that you have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. What you're saying is that you are a sinner for whom Jesus shed his blood. That's what it is to be the church. The church is a people redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And the Bible is not silent on its description of God's redeemed. The Bible is filled with, with pictures that tell us something of what the church is like. A family, a bride, branches on a vine, a priesthood, a house, 
a pillar of truth, a field, a building, a temple, a body, a flock, and on and on we could go. Each picture like a facet of a multifaceted jewel. It's in spinning the jewel that we actually have an opportunity to appreciate what these word pictures collectively tell us about what the church is like. It's in the spinning of the jewel that we actually keep our view of the church balanced rather than grabbing hold of one or two of those pictures and allowing it to inform our entire perception of the church. And so in week two, we spun the jewel. We saw more of the fullness of the beauty of who Jesus is and who we are in him. And I mentioned that that my hope is that we would more and more embrace the fullness of what it means to be the church, that we would not be the church that grabs hold of one or two of those pictures Uh, in scripture, but a people who reflect the fullness of who the scriptures reveal the church to be by God's grace. Last week, we took a look at the pillars of the church, the core convictions, the core values, those things that by God's grace have shaped and will continue to shape every aspect of the life of this church. And my hope was that you would find yourself encouraged to be a part of a church that holds high the convictions, the values that we took a look at last week. This morning, I want us to take a look at what I'm calling the proclamation of the church. And I want to argue that you and I, in committing ourselves to love one another, particularly in in the midst of the messiness of life on the ground in a particularized community, are saying something quite glorious to the watching world about God. So with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to John chapter 13. We'll be in verses 33 through 35 this morning. Very short passage of scripture. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible or you have a translation that's difficult to track with, please take that Bible as the church's gift to you. We'll just say happy early Valentine's Day. How about that? Let me, uh, let me do this. Let me pray and, and we'll jump in and we'll get going this morning. God, we have spent a great deal of time at a high altitude throughout the course of this series with phrases like adding brush strokes of gospel color to the canvas of human history, a very tweetable statement, a statement that many Christ followers, if it were posted on Facebook, would probably like it or share it. But this morning, we need your help to understand what it means to actually put tracks on the ground to a phrase like that. When we talk about adding brush strokes of gospel color to the canvas of human history, what is that? What are we really doing? What are we really grabbing hold of? What are we really embracing? Would you help us to see that uh, through your word this morning, by the power of your spirit, Holy Spirit, we desperately need you. Would you move in our hearts this morning to awaken us to the beauty and wonder of what it means to be the church and what's truly at stake? Uh, Jesus, we lift these things up in your name. Amen. John's gospel account, if you've, if you've ever read it, if you've been a Christian for very long, you, you've probably recommended it to someone who's a new follower of Jesus. It's one of the first go-tos for new Christians to grab hold of. Um, it, it's John's gospel account that tells us a great deal of who, about who Jesus is. Uh, many of you may recall we went through a series on the I am statements of Jesus around this time last year, and we got to see some of those facets in this multifaceted um, declaration of who Jesus is through his I am statements. Who is the real Jesus? John records his entire gospel account to help answer that question. 
And he doesn't exactly go the inconspicuous route as far as the purpose of his writing goes. He's not out to trick anyone into the kingdom, so to speak. He's a pretty straightforward guy. He actually tells us point blank why he's recording the words that make up his gospel account. In fact, many of your Bibles, uh, when you get to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, above that, you have in bold font subtitling, the purpose of this book. Couldn't get any more clearer than that. And John says this in Chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. In other words, everything you see in John's gospel account, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you come in this morning, you're unsure of who Jesus really is, I would encourage you to spend your time this week in the book of John and explore the answer to that question, which you should find in that book of the Bible. But here's the question for us this morning. What is this book of the Bible, and particularly John chapter 13, verses 33 through 35, have to do with our series on the church? John chapter 13 marks the beginning of what's known as Jesus's farewell discourse. Um, Jesus is preparing his disciples for some pretty cosmic level events that are about to take place. He's giving his final instructions to them, you might say, uh, before his impending death, resurrection, and departure. So kind of important, last words before you are to leave the disciples to to sort out what it means to, to be the church in its earliest founding days. Picking up the story in verse 33, Jesus says, to the boys, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. He, he says to his disciples, I'm not going to be with you much longer. He's announcing his departure, and having done so, and having made clear that they cannot come along with him, he begins to explain to them what he expects of them while he's away. He says, verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Very famous words, love one another. Fairly simple statement, right? D.A. Carson says this. He says, the new command is simple enough for a toddler to memorize and appreciate. Profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed at how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. Love one another. It's not a new commandment in the sense that nothing like it had ever been said before. The Mosaic law declared that God's covenant people were to love God and neighbor. It's a new commandment in that it's rooted in a new standard. Look again at verse 34. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. It's a loving one another as Jesus loved us. As Jesus has loved us, to love is to condescend. As Jesus condescended and entered into the slums of human history, to love is to suffer for the sake of the other. As Jesus suffered so that we might have life, to love is to, to willingly be stripped of glory. As Jesus was stripped of glory so that you and I might have hope, to love is to die. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's not pretend like love is easy. Love is costly, but it shines with the radiance of God because God is love, John tells us elsewhere. And we shine with the radiance of God when we walk by the Spirit in love, which is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 35, amazingly, by this all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. Jesus' followers, in committing themselves to love one another humbly and sacrificially, are proclaiming something quite glorious to the watching world. The, the fascinating thing about these verses, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but verse 35 both expands and contracts at the same time. Think about it. Verse 35 expands in that it, it doesn't just apply to the disciples in Jesus' day. We know that because John says elsewhere to a very different group of Christ followers. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's a command that the church universal is meant to embrace. To all who know something of the love of Jesus, love one another. Verse 35 expands in that sense. But, but it also contracts at the same time. Because one of the most compelling displays of one another love is when that one another love is localized in the grit and messiness of everyday living. Just think about the makeup of the earliest New Testament churches. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and slave owners, impoverished and wealthy, prostitutes, tax collectors, and Pharisees. Now take John 13, 35 and put it to work in that particularized community. There's no way that's happening apart from the work of the gospel and the power of Holy Spirit, right? I'll be honest with, with you guys for a second. This message shifted somewhere early in the week. Somewhere around Monday afternoon, things shifted for me because here's what I wanted to do. What I really wanted to do was end this series by presenting to you all of the way ways that the church is a means of God's grace to you. To avert your eyes from the grit and messiness that comes uh, with being part of a local expression of Jesus' church. I mean, let's be honest. If you, if you live in the high altitude of the church universal only, the, the less gritty and messy it looks, right? You've been, if you've ever been in an airplane, you've looked down from a high altitude, it's a, a lot more difficult to see the detail of the landscape, right? It, it's when you get closer that you begin to see the blemishes and the messiness and the grit of it all. Going back to the first week of this series, the church is a motley crew, a diverse group of misfits who have been reconciled to God and one another through the cross of Jesus Christ who seek to live lives that sing of God's goodness, glory, and grace. Where is it seemingly most impossible to live out this command to love one another? I would argue in your own backyard. The grit and messiness uh, exists through the, the church universal. Make no mistake about that. I'm not arguing that it doesn't. But it's most visible to us in the church local, where we struggle alongside one another, where we stand in the trenches with one another, where we care for one another and embrace one another and sacrificing our lives for one another in the day in and day out. H have you ever thought about and done a study on the collective one another statements that you find in the New Testament? Most of them are not very glamorous. Let me just give you a small sample size of this. Part of what it is to love one another is to outdo one another in showing honor. Romans 12.10. That's easy, right? Part of what it is to love one another is to live in harmony with one another. Romans 12.16. No problem there. Part of what it is to love one another is to agree with one another. 1 Corinthians 1.10. Part of what it is to love one another is to serve one another in love. Galatians 5.13. Part of what it is to love one another is to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, chapter 2. 
Part of what it is to love one another is to be kind and forgiving to one another. Ephesians 4.32. Part of what it is to love one another is to teach and admonish one another. Colossians 3.16. Part of what it is to love one another, maybe one of the hardest for us in this context, is to confess your sins to one another. James chapter 5, verse 16. And I could keep going. That's not the end of the list. Loving one another in the low altitude grit and grime of the local church is hard. As a church, coming back to John 13, 35, there is no way we pull that off without a big God and a big gospel. It's a really good thing that we serve a big God and that the gospel is massive, is it not? By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. God has determined that humble, sacrificial, self-giving love for one another, particularly in the low-altitude messiness of the local church, is a declaration to the watching world that Jesus is real, that his sacrifice on behalf of sinners like you and me is real. John Bloom, a Christian writer, says it this way. He says, Jesus did not design the church to be a place where our dreams come true. Actually, it's where many of our dreams are disappointed and die. And this is more of a grace to us than we likely realize because our dreams are often much more selfish than we discern. Our personal expectations easily become tyrants to everyone else because everyone else fails to meet them. When we are more focused on how others' failings and foibles obstruct the ideal community we want to pursue than we are on serving those others and pursuing their good and joy, our expectations can kill love, which impedes the real mission. He goes on to say, Jesus designed the church to be a place where love comes true, where we lay our preferences aside out of deference to others. It is meant to be a living laboratory of love, a place where there are so many opportunities, big and small, to lay down our lives for each other that the love of Christ becomes a public spectacle. That's why when it comes to the church in this age, the picture of community we should have in our minds is not some utopian harmony, but Golgotha. In living life together, we die every day. We lay down our lives for each other. Kind of a weird way to end a series, right? You think, man, you're going to just get on the upswing and say something that's celebratory, that champions, and I think this is. I think John 13, 35, on the ground, in the grit and grime of the low-altitude messiness of the local church, is a celebratory declaration for the world looking on. And so I would say this as we close out this series. Look around. Don't avert your eyes. You're surrounded by imperfection if you have not figured that out by now. Sinners saved by grace. And oh, by the way, if you look in the mirror, you're one too. A sinner saved by grace. You know, there's another name for each and every one of those sinners who surround you this very moment. Disciple. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We, we get the unbelievable privilege. This is where the, that lofty, uh, philosophical, beautiful, high-altitude language of adding brush strokes of gospel color to the canvas of human history gain traction 
Um, this, this is where they become real. We get the unbelievable privilege of entering into the low-altitude grit of a particularized community of disciples. And amazingly, amazingly, our humble, sacrificial love for one another puts a big God and a big gospel on display for everyone looking in. That's the beauty of the church. Humble, gracious, self-giving, sacrificial love when it's seemingly impossible to love. Showing that the impossible is possible because of Jesus. That's all I have for you this morning. Maybe the shortest sermon that I've ever preached. We're going to move forward in our time together. And uh, in a very timely fashion, again, I didn't, I didn't seek to, to rig this in a certain way that this would align with community group signups. Um, I had a, a very different plan for this morning earlier this week, but I do think that God is very timely in his providence to provide an opportunity for us this morning to respond. Um, I don't know where you are in, in your exploration of the gospel and, and of, of the church, but, but I would ask you to ask yourself the question, am I moving toward the grit and the grime and the messiness of the, of the, the particularization, particularization of, of a group of disciples on the ground within this church family? Um, we're going to continue with week two of our community group signups, and we're going to do it a little differently this week. Uh, we're going to uh, ask you to, if you haven't filled out a card and you're interested in being part of a group, um, which is where much of what we talked about this morning really does get fleshed out, um, you'll see a, a red card underneath the chair in the row in front of you. You can go ahead and grab that, and you can spend the next few moments filling that out. Uh, and then when we come to receive of communion, you can leave those cards on the communion tables, and we will collect those after the service. We want to do that just to, to kind of create a little bit more of a response to the opening of, of God's Word and the exploring of, of this one another love and create space for you to, to respond to the preached Word this morning uh, in a very uh, intentional way. Uh, and so uh, whenever you come to receive of communion, uh, again, Please leave those cards on the tables and we'll collect those and then we will launch our groups next week and we will experience the beauty and the grittiness of, of the one another life in a very intentional way um, in that context. Uh, we're also going to move into a time of communion, which will carry us throughout the rest of the service. You can come up whenever you're ready to receive of the bread and the cup. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. We take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. And I would just encourage you before you come, just to, to spend some time sitting with John 13, 35 and, and to ask the Lord to, to stir your heart if he hasn't already to, to move toward uh, the, the grittiness of one another love on the ground in, a, in the low altitude context that, that we are a part of as this expression of Jesus' bride.